the book of Isaiah. We've been uh, making our way through those early chapters. And uh, we come tonight to chapter 6, which is a strange kind of chapter because um, you, you think it's going to be chapter 1. Because this is when we get to hear the call of Isaiah to be a prophet, the call of God. But um, obviously the, the message was so urgent that he, he launches into, as he writes it down, those things that he wants, particularly Jerusalem, Judah, uh, but Israel, and also the nations to know. But tonight we have this privilege of um, hearing from him how he met the Lord in this way and how it changed his life. And during in this passage, uh, we'll see him have a vision of God. There'll be a, a moment of confession of sin. And there'll be a cleansing and then a commissioning. Those are the kind of the things that we'll see in this passage. So he begins to write in uh, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. The Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. I kind of feel a bit in awe that I'm actually going to speak on this passage because I'd rather just kind of meditate on it for a while, but I'm, I'm going to have a go. So uh, I'm going to pray um, as we uh, just uh, prepare. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, the Bible. 
It is so precious to us because through the Bible, we get to know who you are. We get to know your character. We see the things that you did and you said. And we hear the testimony of your people down through the ages, through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. As those who were with you, Jesus, walked with you, talked with you, heard all that you said and wrote things down. So we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. And we pray that as we look together at it, we would catch a fresh glimpse of your glory and majesty. Then as we respond in worship, we will be caught up with you. Give us that fresh understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember this year. Someone said, and it's quite a famous person, so I think you'll know. The year. is not a year on which I will look back on with undiluted pleasure. In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an annus horribilis. Anyone guess the year? Ooh, 92, Hermie, gold star, well done, 1992. And I don't know if you'd heard that expression before, if your Latin was really brushed up, you know, annus horribilis means horrible year. And there's the opposite, annus miribilis, which means wonderful year. And... uh, if you want to know all that the Queen was talking about, you can, you can find out why it was such a horrible year. But I wonder if, if you were to ask Isaiah, before this encounter with the Lord, that he writes in chapter 6, whether the year 740 BC was an Annus Horribilis or an Annus Mirabilis. You're going to check my Latin, aren't you, when you go home? Did you say? Well, the wonderful thing about the scriptures is there are some times when we, we have a vague idea of when things happen. But here in this passage, we know the exact date. Because Isaiah writes about his encounter with the Lord, this amazing vision that he sees in the year that King Uzziah died. And we know from the other scriptures that King Uzziah died in 740 BC, 740 years before Jesus was born. A little bit of the historical background that was raging around the area. There was a new superpower in the area, the Arameans. And uh, after three years of siege, Arpad, which was the Aramean city, had fallen to the latest superpower, the Assyrians. And a a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pelser, or Palsa, who was the king of Assyria, now turned his attentions to the south, and specifically toward Jerusalem and Judah. And it's at that moment, just when Judah needed their king the most, King Uzziah 
died. Sometimes he's described in the scriptures as Azariah. He has two names, Uzziah and Azariah. And the nation was just shocked, devastated. You can read about his kingship in the uh, Chronicles and the Kings. But he had been a military genius. He'd come to the throne at the age 16. He reigned with his father as a co-regent, but he was on the throne for 52 years. Now, we know that that's nothing compared to our Queen Elizabeth now. But in those days, to be on the throne for 52 years was amazing. He had won wars against the Philistines and the Ammonites. And he had been governing and ruling over a time where Judah was at its height of prosperity. But in this year, he dies. But again, if you read in 2 Chronicles 26, you can read the story of how he died. He had become so successful, so powerful, and so proud. And it was his pride that led to his downfall. Full of his self-importance, he entered the temple. And he went into the temple and he went to burn incense on the altar, something that only at that time the consecrated priests could do. But he goes in and the priests try to stop him and he started to rage against the priests. Don't you know who I am? I can go anywhere. I'm the king. And as he was raging against the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And the priests kind of stood back. And suddenly Uzziah realized what was happening to him. And he pleaded with them to get him out of the temple. And he dies from leprosy. It was as almost as if he brought upon God's judgment on himself. He almost felt as though he was above everyone else. And even entering that temple in that way, he was kind of taking that holiness of God for granted and and he is struck down. And this is the year that King Uzziah died. But he had also governed over a land where there was huge prosperity, but also People's faith had waned. It had brought a diminished view of God. They still went through the rituals and the festivals and things like that. But Isaiah is one of those prophets who is raised up to say, they're empty. Unless your heart is for God, what's the point of all these things that you do? In fact, in chapter 2, if you can remember that, one of the things that God says is, Not to trust in mere humans. They had turned away from trusting in God and put their trust in kings and mighty men. I read a lot of uh, material from Open Doors and uh, in some of the material about China, the stories coming back from China that their new president who's made himself president for life is stamping down on the church again. And the underground church is actually thanking God for it. Because they believe that if he had given the church freedom, they would have got lost in materialism. 
that they would have started building so many church buildings. It would have been the most huge, massive church building project the world had ever seen because there's nearly 100 million Christians in China. And they see their enemy as materialism. Not the president. Not the clampdown. Which is interesting, isn't it? And here in Judah, it was a similar thing. Materialism had taken hold and their view of God had diminished. And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah found himself in the temple. It's strange because I, I should know this because I've read it so many times. But I assumed that Isaiah went to the temple when King Uzziah died. I assumed that that's what drove him to the temple. But actually, it reminded me when, when we started it in chapter 1, verse 1, that, that he says that he prophesied during the reign of King Uzziah. So this actual call of, of God upon Isaiah's life must be while still Uzziah is still actually alive. Whether he's got leprosy, we don't know. Because it just says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he sees the Lord Almighty, the God of angel armies, the God of hosts. So the first part, he sees a vision. There in the temple, Isaiah is there worshipping as he would normally have done. And he is captivated by this vision. And again, we just stand in awe of this. He is seeing something that, that is so amazing, so awesome. And he sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. Which tells him so clearly that the true king of Judah, Jerusalem, of Israel, of the world, is the one who's seated on that throne. However powerful King Uzziah may have been, however much prosperity he brought to the nation, Isaiah has a vision of the real king of kings and lord of lords. And so magnificent is this vision. I even went on Google to see if there are any paintings that people had done of this vision. And they look pathetic. Because you cannot put it into a painting. Just the very hem of the robe that he sees fills the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. And in this vision, he sees heaven and earth touch in this blinding vision of God, in his transcendence and righteousness. It is a vision of holiness. And in the vision, Isaiah sees these angel seraphs flying, and they've got six wings. And when he describes them, he describes that they have feet and faces and hands. I don't know how you imagine angels to look like, but he describes them with, with feet and hands and, 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 uh, and faces, but with six wings. And with two wings, they cover their eyes because it's such a holy moment that even they don't look upon the holiness of God. With two of their wings, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their feet in terms of modesty. And with the other two, they fly and they're calling out to one another, worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So majestic, so amazing is this vision that even the angel hosts surrounding the throne just cover their eyes. 
cover their feet and cry out holy. And he describes their voices. He says that at the sound of their voices, the 10 meter bronze pillars that held up the temple portico shook. And the whole temple is filled with smoke. It is awesome, isn't it? The temple begins to shake and is filled with smoke. So notice that Isaiah describes the angels. He describes God's throne. He describes God's robe. But he doesn't describe what God looks like. We would have wanted, what does he look like? He is holy, holy, holy. God isn't just holy. He isn't just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. Some people have seen in that the Trinity, that he has a vision of the Trinity, holy, holy, holy. Others just say, well, that's the worship of heaven. And he hears God's voice. It reminded me of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. When he, is, he t- talks about himself and he says that he, he knows a man, he's talking about himself, who was caught up into the third heaven. We, we're not sure what he meant by third heaven, but it was paradise. And he didn't know whether he was in his body, out of his body, but he had this experience and he heard things that he could not tell anyone. He was caught up into heaven and he heard things that were inexpressible. He can't express them. So amazing it was. We read at the beginning John's vision. John had a vision of of Jesus, risen, exalted, seated on the throne. And and as he has that vision, he, he says he falls down as if he were dead. He cannot stand before it. John actually writes in his gospel that Isaiah saw Jesus. In chapter 12, verse 37 to 41, when, when John is describing the unbelief among the Jews, he quotes Isaiah 6. And he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus and his glory and spoke about him. That's why I believe that Isaiah saw Jesus, because John writes it. The New Testament writings, uh, writers had that belief that Jesus had made pre-incarnate appearances in visions and dreams to people. So he sees this amazing vision. And what do you imagine his reaction to be would be, oh, how wonderful, I'm in the presence of God. You know, those special worship times that you have. It's just wonderful to be in the presence of God and not a bit of it. He is struck down with sheer terror and despair. Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. And and you didn't see the king. If you saw the king, you would die. If you saw the Lord Almighty, that was what people believed. You saw him, very few people ever saw. Moses was privileged to see him face to face. But not many. 
And he cries out, woe to me, I am ruined. He is immediately convicted of his own sinfulness. If we encounter God in his holiness, that will be the reaction. We will be suddenly aware of who we are and who he is. It reminded me of Peter when, when Jesus comes and uh, he meets Peter and he asks him to you know, go out in the boat and let down the nets and they have this amazing miraculous catch of fish you can read about it in Luke 5 and Peter's reaction is go away from me Lord because he sees in Jesus something of the holiness of God and he says I'm a sinful man go away from me it's interesting that in the presence of God and his his holiness degrees of sin are irrelevant Isaiah is undone Terrified, who can see the Lord and live? And he identifies himself with a sinful people. Those people that he has been bringing the words of God's judgment to, he identifies himself with them. You see, it's the holiness of God which reveals our true condition, not comparison with others. You know, before I was a Christian, when someone told me I was a sinner, he was actually my brother who told me. And I said, oh, no, I'm not. I know, I know sinful people. They're bad people. But I was comparing myself with the wrong people. If I compare myself with the holy God, who is perfect in every way, then I am a sinner beyond sinners. And so Isaiah breaks down. He thinks he's going to die. Such is the holiness of God before him. Such is this vision of God. And he breaks down, confesses his sin. But Isaiah isn't left there. There's this amazing cleansing and forgiveness that comes. And again, as I was reading this passage again and again, wondering whether this was just in a vision that he saw or whether this actually happened to him. I don't know. In his distress, he cries out that he is ruined. He's a sinful person. And then he is cleansed. Forgiven. His sins atoned for. By the sheer grace of God. Nothing Isaiah has done. Nothing that he's earned. Not for being a mighty prophet. Because he wasn't a mighty prophet. (laughs) This is his calling. He says he sees that one of the angels, seraphs, flies to the altar. And the altar symbolizes that, that provision of God that is made for the forgiveness of sins. One of the angels flies to the altar and takes a live coal from the altar. Red hot burning coal. I don't know if you've ever burnt your lips on something really hot that you've eaten. One of those chips and you couldn't resist. You, before they've cooled down, you've put them in your lips. And, oh, gosh. Or burnt the inside of your mouth. But he sees. And I wonder if he just sees it in a vision or whether... It actually happens. But we notice that the angel takes the live burning coal from the altar with tongs 
and he touches Isaiah's mouth. And says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt and sin is paid for. If it was real, I wonder if people have said, Isaiah, how did you get those scars on your lips? But this is so powerful for us, isn't it? Because we read this passage in the light of Jesus. Isaiah has seen a vision of Jesus. Holy, high and lifted up the Lord Almighty. And from the altar, he receives forgiveness. And very simply, a table that we have set before us is a table that reflects the provision of Jesus. That he laid down his life for us. That we might be forgiven. Our sins atoned for by his sacrifice, his blood, his body. I believe it is a foretelling of the cleansing power of Jesus. That alter the place of sacrifice. The cross. That's where we come, isn't it? And find forgiveness and cleansing and redemption as we put our trust in the one who died for us. So he has a vision. He confesses his sins. He is cleansed. And then he is commissioned. And maybe it becomes apparent why The live coal is put upon his lips, his mouth are touched because the Lord is seeking someone who will go as a messenger. And here we have that that understanding of Trinity in this passage because God says, Who whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Not who will go for me, who will go for us? The word it's plural. Who will go for us? God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds immediately. Here am I. Send me. He is to be God's mouthpiece. And he is remembered now as one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. You can go to the Jerusalem Museum and see the early manuscripts of of Isaiah's, the parchments, the scraps that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls and those first copies of, of Isaiah's prophecy that are exactly the same as our Bible. And he is honored in that place, but he was never honored while he was alive. As with most of the prophets, they were despised and rejected and treated terribly because their message was not comfortable. He comes with a message to Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, but to the whole world that God is bigger than you think. God is holier than you think. God is fiercer than you think. And he is even more gracious than you think. But when we read the passage, did you reckon that his ministry was an easy one or a tough one? 
I remember, I, I, I remember having a call to, to become a preacher for Jesus. I remember the call, but he didn't tell me that, right, I'm going to call you to be a preacher, but no one will listen to you. And their hearts will be hardened and turned against you. I'm glad he didn't say that to me. But his ministry here for Isaiah's commission, they will refuse to hear. They will refuse to see. Their hearts will be hardened. It's almost as their unresponsiveness will be an aspect of God's judgment on them. Because you can read it and think, actually, God's making their hard heart. He's making their eyes. But no, he's not. It's, it's a response to their indifference and unresponsiveness. That when they hear the prophet, their hearts are hardened. And the same is true today. When we share the gospel with people, when we share the good news about Jesus, there are some whose hearts are melted by it. I've seen it year on year on year at Alpha, and their hearts are melted and they come to faith. But I've also seen that some people, their hearts are hardened. It's the same message that they hear, the same truth that they hear. But some turn away and say, that's not for me. I don't believe that. And Isaiah will continue after he resumes his, his written prophecy that we'll, we'll go into in the coming weeks. See, the people have chosen arrogance and indifference, and God's judgment will be inevitable. Each of the four gospel quotes verse 9 and 10. Each of the four gospels. To remind us that even the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ provokes such a response. Some hearts will be hardened, but others will be softened. But there is hope. He ends with hope. Here in the last verse, verse 13, there is that slender thread of hope because a righteous remnant will remain. He talks about a stump which will bear fruit. A holy seed, which suggests new growth. There is devastation over Jerusalem and Judah and Israel, but a stump remains. And maybe Isaiah himself will be part of that remnant that begins to gather. But we know from another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, verse 1, which we'll get to in a few weeks. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse is David's father. Who comes in the line of David? Jesus. This is a prophecy about Jesus. From that stump, a holy seed, new life will come. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. So as well as giving us an awesome view of God, this chapter provides us with a portrait of the servant Isaiah himself. He was a man who had an incredible vision of God. A man deeply aware of his own sinfulness. 
but also had a profound experience of the grace of God and a willingness to go for God wherever God would send him. Here am I, send me. So we're going to respond to this amazing passage by worshipping the Lord together and then sharing communion at the end of our service together. I'm going to invite the band to come back. Shall we stand together and pray? Uh, Feel free again to sit down at any